So the questions I'm asking myself all fall under the category of, if we could measure the world, how would we manage it differently? And this is a question we've been asking ourselves in the digital realm since the birth of the internet. Um, you know, uh, with on our digital lives, clicks and histories and cookies and such, we can now measure our beautifully. The feedback loop is is complete. It's called closing the loop. Um, and as you know, we can only manage what we can measure. Um, and on screens, we're now measuring beautifully. But most of the world is still not on screens. And so the question is, as we get better and better at measuring the world, wearables, Internet of Things, cars, satellites, drones, sensors everywhere, we are now going to be able to extend, going to be able to close the loop everywhere. Industry, agriculture, the environment. And we're going to start to find out what the consequences of our actions are. And presumably we'll make smarter actions as a result. And so this, this, you know, this, um, this journey that we started with the internet for the first 20 years is now extending to the physical world. And every industry is going to have to ask the same question. What do we want to measure? What do we do with that data? How do we manage things differently once we have that data? And this notion of closing the loop everywhere is perhaps, you know, it is the most exciting story of our, of our era. And it's one that started in the digital world, but now moves to the physical world. Closing the loop is the biggest endeavor of, of our age. Closing the loop actually comes from, it's a phrase used in robotics. So you have, clo you know, open loop systems are one where you take action and then you can't measure the results. There's no mm -hmm. feedback. Closed loop systems are where you take action, you measure the results, and then you change your action accordingly. And systems with closed loops have feedback loops, and they and they self-adjust. They they quickly stabilize on you know on optimal conditions. And systems with over with un, with open loops overshoot. You know they miss it entirely. Um, and like take agriculture for example. Agriculture is one where you plant seeds, and then you like fertilize them, and you spray them, etc. And then you wait six months, and you hope for the best. Um, now, you know, once upon a time, people really understood the land, and they understood the plants, and they had this intuitive feel for what would happen. And then farms got bigger, and there were fewer people on them, and so we didn't have the ability to walk the land and feel it and close the loop. And so we had to, in the absence of information, we had to resort to monoculture. We went to predictability. It's like, look, we're going to close the loop on a kind of an industrial scale, which is by use this Monsanto seed and spray it with this, you know, chemical on this very kind of, you know, well understood soil that I'm likely to get a pretty good outcome. So in the absence of information, we went with some monoculture and simplicity and a lot of chemicals. Um, so once we could measure, now we can't measure, so we just use predictability. But there's a real cost to that. Monoculture has its cost in terms of genetic diversity, chemicals have the cost on the environment and the food, etc. So what if you could, so how are we going to measure the agriculture again? You know, we have industrial farms that are massive, and we're not going to populate the farms with people walking them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there's, you know, we want, to, we, want, we want sensors. And it starts with satellites and airplanes and sensors on the ground and maybe sensors on the tractors and then ultimately drones, etc. But we now have the ability to start to measure those crops again. And the hope is that by now closing the loop on agriculture, that we can make smarter choices. Like rather than saying, hey, you know, it would suck if we had a fungal infection. 
because we would, by the time we found out, we'd lose the whole crop. So we're going to prophylactically spray fungicide everywhere. So why would you do that? Well, because, you know, because the fungal infection could happen anywhere. The, the, the farm's 10 miles, you know, square. And, you know, to be honest, it's too risky. What if I told you that you could find out whether if you, you know, on an hourly basis or daily basis or whatever, whether you had a fungal infection anywhere on, you know, in the, uh, in the crop. Um, and then you would only, you know, you'd wait till you had a problem before you would act on it. And you would only spray fungicide where it was needed. Well, you'd say, that's awesome. You know, I'd say chemicals, lower the chemical load in the ground and in, in, in the plants. Um, and, um, you know, it would be more efficient. It's just simply measurement. Simply measurement. If you knew, you would act. But if you don't know, you have to do these really dumb prophylactic, you know, um, uh, you know um, scalable solutions, which are bad. Um, so that's, that's just one example where we used to be able to measure, then we lost the ability to measure, and now we have the ability to measure again by simply using sensors and, and information to compensate for boots on the ground. Um, and this is true for industry after industry. Like all manufacturing right now is based on these computer-controlled machines, CNC machines, you know, blades, mills, things like that. And um, they are incredibly sophisticated and complicated, but they need these experts to program them. Super hard. You have to understand exactly you know, what you're making, exactly the bits, the materials, etc. And these, these, these experts are now like 60 years old, and, and uh, they're not making any more of them. And, uh, and, so the, and so it goes to China, because they're, they're still making experts who can run CNC machines. Well, why do we need experts to, to program CNC machines? And the answer is because they're dumb machines. They're open-loop machines. You know, they uh, yeah, feed them the commands, and they just act on the commands. And if the commands include things that are bad, like tear yourself to pieces, they will. Well, that's crazy. I mean, obviously, these machines should be measuring themselves. They should be measuring vibration. They should be measuring, you know, where their heads and bits and pieces are. They should be measuring the material. Um, you know, they should, they should be smart enough not to do stupid things. And so we made them just smart enough to be operated by computers, but not as smart enough to operate the computers themselves. In other words, we, we, they're open-loop machines, and we need to make them closed-loop. So there's another example where sensors and connecting to the Internet would suddenly mean that you don't need an expert, and you don't, and you don't need a big overbuilt machine. It can just be smart enough to figure things out on its own. So that is, that, that's this, this endeavor of sort of, we've built these fantastic sensors, we've built these great computing environments, we have lots of information right now, and we now need to extend the tendrils of the internet out into the physical world, start measuring things, act on that information, and then make smarter choices about our planet. Sure. And, 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 you know, this notion of feedback loops, and you know, um, by the way, the opposite of a feedback loop is a feed forward. You know, feed-forward system. In other words, it doesn't loop back. Um, um, so the, the, the first notion of the power of feedback loops, I think of as being Norbert Wiener's you know, construct of cybernetics. And, and um, you know, th that was in the early days, and some of those cybernetic machines were actually mechanical. Um, so when you think of the uh, regulators in, in steam machines, you know, with these little balls that would come out by centrifugal force and slow the machine down, that's a form of feedback loop. So, you know, it's a, it's a sort of analog cybernetic machines. Machine, and then, the, and then you know, they started with early digital cybernetic machines with analog oscillators and things like that. But now, you know, but now we've extended that 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 concept of feedback into the entirety of our of the internet, and then and soon beyond. So I think this is this is you could call it the new cybernetics in a sense. But 
it's so universal that it almost doesn't deserve it doesn't need a special name this is just measurement there's two kinds of failures of a failure of an idea one is one is that it's 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 uh, it's it's wrong or abandoned and the other is that it's right and adopted in both if it's if it's wrong abandoned off it goes if it's right and adopted it's typically so right and adopted so broadly that doesn't people don't think of it as an idea anymore it just is you know it's like um uh, you know if you if you, if you if you show a kid a phone but they of course think that it's wireless and that it has a screen and things like that this is what they think of as a phone there's you don't have to say wireless phone anymore the idea is sort of internalized and i think the yeah, the notion on you know, in the in the digital world of cybernetics is now completely internalized you know, of course you've got server logs. Of course you have A-B testing. Of course you know, Amazon is watching what you do to improve the experience. We don't call it cybernetics anymore. It's just called measurement. Um, but in the, in, the, in the physical world, which hasn't adopted the digital concepts right now, it is, um, it is, it is, it is still so alien as to, as to almost need a new word. So we talk about Internet of Things. We talk about the industrial Internet. We talk about, you know, we talk about, um, you know, GIS, you know, geospatial information systems and things like that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a whole different language than the ones we use on the Internet. And maybe the point, and you just did Google, but maybe the point is, is that, is that um, you know, the rest of the world just needs to think more like the Internet. Um, but they, because they, they have different cultures and different and different, you know, incentives, they haven't really adopted the same language. And, and maybe they never will. And that's, and that's okay. That's why I think that it's simply, I mean, I use the phrase closing loop because that's the phrase we use in robotics. Other people might use the, the you know, the phrase um, big data, or they might call it, um, uh, I don't know, or before they called it big data, they called it um, data mining. Remember that? That was nuts. Um, anyway, we're going to come up with a new word for it, but, um, but, you know, we do know that, you know, this goes both ways. The internet's, you know, the tendrils of the internet reach out through sensors and then these sensors feed back to the internet. So the sensors get smarter because they're connected to the internet and the internet gets smarter because it's connected to the sensors. And so this feedback loop actually extends beyond the industry that's feeding back to the meta industry, which is the internet and the planet. How does one become a roboticist? That is a great question. I have no idea how to become a roboticist because I, I think, like any good, sort of, um, you know, properly humble roboticist, I don't call myself one. But um, and, I, and I'm certainly not. But um, I'll, I'll tell you how I became the CEO of a robotics company. Um, so I was trained as a um, as a as, as a physicist um, in the late '80s, and um, I turned out to be a really bad physicist. Um, now, I I wasn't. The, I was just terrible compared to the other physicists at the time. Was, um, I was going to school at, uh, at UC Berkeley, and the first generation of Chinese students were coming over, and they were brilliant and incredibly focused and picked from the best of the schools, etc. They just kicked my ass, um, and uh, you know, but that's okay. I was, I, you know, I, I struggled on, went to Los Alamos, and I thought, okay, yeah, you know, to be honest, I, maybe I'm not going to be a Nobel Prize winner, but I can still be a scientist. And I was destined, like the rest of the scientists, the physicists from my era, to work on the superconducting supercollider. You'll remember this. It didn't end well. Um, it was canceled because of the cost overruns. 
And so, and so all of us who were in physics, which we'd been, you know, these romantic ideals, the Feynman's, the Manhattan Project, etc., we realized that our career trajectory now had focused down to the point of like, you were going to be, you know, you're going to work on one project at CERN for 15 years, and the project will either be a failure, in which case, no paper, or it'll be a success, in which case you'll be author 300 on this paper. On the result of this, you, as a result of that paper, you will become an assistant professor at Iowa State. I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Um, and so, the, and nor did anyone else from my class. So they, we, they all vaporized, and most of them went to Wall Street to become quants. Uh, and we owe to them, we owe the, uh, we owe the um, subprime mortgage and all that. Some of the others went on to start the internet. And you ask, well, what's the connection? And the answer is the internet, the modern internet, started in that physics world. Even though physics was blowing up, and because of the, the, you know, our ability to measure, our ability to actually have instruments um, were, was, 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 was destroyed by funding, we did three things. First of all, we built the internet by connecting physics labs. Second of all, we built the web, CERN, as the web, as you know, started at CERN with physics. And the third is, we were the first to do big data. The only big data at the time was physics data. And we had the supercomputers, they were crazy. And sort of like they're half the power of your phone now, but they were supercomputers at the time, and we had the statistical techniques. So when you look at that, the internet, the web, and and big data, the same stuff that today is Bayesian statistics and you know and, and Google and all this, and to say nothing of, of you know Wall Street, um, we had portable skills. And so those who didn't go to Wall Street to use their big data skills, and by the way, Wall Street was the next big data, the adjacent big data space, the rest of them went to start the internet. And you know, some people started internet infrastructure companies. Some people did things like Netscape and you know, and, and, and the browsers and the software. And I did not none of the above. I went to the science journals um, to kind of write about this, the use of this interesting communication technology in science, and then outside of science. And that was in Nature, and I was at Science, and I went to the Economist uh, to start the internet coverage there. Um, and meanwhile, we were reading this magazine called Wired, which had just come out in '93, and it was like, what? This thing, this tool we scientists use, it could have application for everybody. It isn't about just scientific data, but it could, you know, cultural revolution, change, you know, the nation state, political. It was mind blowing. Um, so when the opportunity came for me to, you know, um, to to actually take over Wired and uh, Conte Nasty then owned it, asked me to do it, I was like, absolutely. This magazine changed my changed my life. This is the biggest story of our time. So I went and did that. You, know, you, you can ask, you know, why was I drawn to physics? And that was probably just the romantics of that era. Um, why, when I was in physics, was I drawn to computational physics? And that was like, again, it was sort of in the air. Computers were kind of cool, and it seemed like it was, you know, given a choice between, like, getting really good at math or getting really good at computers, the computers seemed easier to me. Once I was in computers, why was I drawn to networks? And again, it was kind of in the air. It was like, if I could tell that into the cray, why wouldn't I? That'd be awesome. Now, once you're drawn to networks, why are you drawn to the into the web? And again, it was just sort of in the air. Um, the cool kids were doing it, and it was just the right place at the right time. You know, I like I, I have like an average IQ, but incredible luck. I've always been in the right place at the right time. And it just so happened that being in physics in 1987, um, working at Los Alamos and telnetting into the Cray was the right place at the right time to make you realize there was something going on. And then you might go, you know, you have this Dayglo magazine called Wired, who's who's basically, you know, um, uh, is showing you your same world from a much more exciting perspective. And they're in California, they're super sexy and cool, and it's like, 
wait, I actually know this stuff. I actually happen to be present at creation. I happen to be one of the few people that can actually do this. And this magazine over there, who's actually not doing it but just sort of writing about it, says that it's much, much cooler than just science and maybe someday I might get a date. Awesome. Sign me up. So that, at that point, that was just like epiphany number one. It's just like internet, big, bet on it. You know, epiphany two was, you know, um, um, in 2001 when after the stock market crash, the dot-com bust, everyone's like, oh, the internet's a hoax, the subprime crisis of its era. And I thought to myself, you know, I think I still believe in this internet thing. I think they're wrong. I think this was a stock market phenomenon, but, you know, the stock market bust, but the, uh, the internet's real. I'm going to bet, I'm going to counter-cyclically bet that this is just like the first minute of the day and that, um, and that I'm going to buy at the bottom. So moved to California, bought at the bottom. Um, and then, you know, and then there were, there were some more epiphanies, you know, I, I spent, I lived in China for a couple of years, being in China from 97 to 2000 and well, 2000 was like, holy crap, this is everything I've read about China is wrong. This is, they're going to crush it. This is great. Um, so that was, a, that was a bit of an epiphany. And then my third epiphany, which gets me back to robotics, was, um, um, so I'm now the editor of Wired. I have a background in computational physics. Um, I've got five children. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I get my children interested in life science and technology? My wife is an editor of nature. Uh, nature and they're like, the kids are not, our kids are playing video games. And I thought, well, you know, robots. Lego Mindstorms robots. That'll be cool. And the kids uh, brought them home, and the kids said, no, that's totally not cool. I've seen Transformers. Where are the freaking lasers? Um, and, uh, and, yeah, these things are slow, and they take all morning to, and do nothing. Real robots are actually not as exciting as CG robots. So I thought, well, what would be cooler than a rolling robot, a flying robot? I'm like, Google flying robot. And if you Google flying robot, the first result is drone. I'm like, oh, I guess a drone is kind of a flying robot. What's a drone? Google drone. Drone, aircraft piloted by an autopilot. Oh, yeah, plane with the brain, I get it. What's an autopilot? Google autopilot. Sensing, computation, lots of math. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. Sensing, computation, lots of math, let's do it. So kids, let's build a, let's build a flying robot with Lego parts. And um, so we did it, and it kind of stuck it in like a model airplane. And it, uh, you know, sent this Mindstorms came with these sensors, gyros, accelerometers, magnetometers, Bluetooth connected, GPS compute. And we did it, and it kind of barely flew, but did fly. And the kids, of course, lost interest and went back to video games. And I was like, holy shit. That should not be possible. Should it not, should not be possible. Because when I made this point, drones were like purely military stuff. Um, you know, global hawks, predators, things like that. And we just did it like on a dining room table with nine-year-olds. Like that... Something, there was a glitch in the matrix, right? Some, there was a disturbance in the force. Something has happened that made it possible for a dad and his kids to build a drone on the, you know, and so what is that? Don't know, but I'm gonna find out. So the kids go off and do their thing. I'm like, set up a website, DIY drones, share my discoveries and progress, start doing research, everyone else, starts joining because it turns out that, you know, like any great idea, everybody had it simultaneously. That was 2007. That was the year. That was the year that everybody woke up to something being different about hardware. So like um, uh, the Wii came out that year, the Wii, the Nintendo Wii video game machine. And so the Fitbit guys got a Wii and they're like, whoa, what is in this, this stick that makes this cursor move? Open up accelerometer. They're like, what else could you do with an accelerometer? Boom, Fitbit. Um, 3D printing came out that year. Arduino, the open source computing program. 
um, the maker movement, make, magazine, all that year, and the iPhone. The iPhone came out that year. And it turns out that was the kind of the meta thing, which is that suddenly Moore's Law, which had been trundling along at a very good rate with personal computers and networks, etc., went boom, just doubled in, 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 in speed, but only with the components inside a smartphone. MEM sensors, cameras, wireless, GPS, battery technology. All of a sudden, these things, which are now operating at the economies of scale of an Apple and a Samsung and a Google, um, those components became available to regular people. And those components then started to transform adjacent spaces and made it so that a regular guy like me could become a roboticist. A little bit of background in, in computational physics, which is what drones are. Um, a little bit of, of, of incentive to try new things, which is what being a dad is. And then, thank you, iPhone and all the rest of the things, we could suddenly do stuff that would have been impossible before. And uh, you know, five years earlier, it would have been, um, so those sensors would have been mechanical. You know, each one of those sensors would be a, a little mechanical cylinder, the mechanical gyro in it. They cost $10,000 each. You need nine of them. Um, so it's like a hundred, and it'd be, it'd be in a box this side. It'd be a hundred thousand dollars mechanical components, weigh maybe five hundred pounds, um, export controlled. You had to actually be like the military to have one. And by the time I got there, it was a tiny little chip that cost three dollars. So impossible, illegal, free and easy. Buy it in Radio Shack, just like that. So. I got. It. I was a roboticist because I was because anybody can be a roboticist. Suddenly, robotics got easy. Yeah. So so how did, so the way we so so, two thousand seven, um, I'm I'm dining table kids hobby, Joe, um, you know. So it, it went from like a weekend activity to like a holy crap, this is kind of interesting. I think it's going to be like two weekend activity. Set up a website. Website takes off. Everyone's like, boom. It's contributing like like PCB designs and and software and aerodynamic stuff. And it's like, oh my god, this is this is actually this is really interesting. It's one of those moments, like a homebrew computing club kind of moments. And then then you know when everyone's trading files and it's great. Then the next generation comes along, you know, just months later, and they're like, hey, whatever what you guys are doing is amazing, but I don't know how to compile code and fab a PCB. Can you just do it for me? So I'm like, okay, I guess we're gonna have to make a kit. How do you do that? Bits and pieces pizza boxes, buy things from China, lay them out on the dining table, again, same dining room table, and say, kids, we're gonna be, we're an assembly line now, we're gonna, we're gonna make kits. And so all Saturday, they had a little post-it notes on little bits and pieces, put the six-year-old in quality control, and we packed up all these boxes, this was a robot blimp kit, called a blimpduino. Packed up all the boxes, took it to a maker fair, sold out in 15 minutes, and it's like, good news, kids, our robot blimp is super popular, it's sold out. And they're like, okay, good. So, and I'm like, well, we have to make more. I'm like, no way. <laughs> We're not doing it. Um, not fun. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that part. Um, I guess I need help. So I found a guy on the internet. One of the, uh, one of the guys who joined DIY Drones, our community, was uh, named Jordi Munoz, who was, showed this, this video of him flying a helicopter with a Wii controller. And I said, Jordi, you're like super smart. Do, do, do you want to help me make these kits? He's like, yeah, you know, to be honest, I, um, I just I, I just moved, you know, to uh, to Riverside outside of, outside of L.A. and I'm waiting for my green card. I can't work, so I got a little time on my hands. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm like, great. Here, I sent him a check for five hundred dollars. He bought the parts, 
And uh, he just started sending me these pictures. He said, you know, he's there, first he starts like, you know, on the dining table. Then it was, I guess it was a garage. Then it was a slightly bigger garage. Then he had help. Got some shelves. Then he had like a, a little industrial space. And he bought some production equipment, pick and place machines, repo ovens, things like that. Then he got a bigger space. He keeps sending these pictures. And every time they get more and more pro. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, he's like buying pick and place machines. I'm like Googling to find out what pick and place machine is. And um, and then he opens up a second factory in Tijuana. Again, this is I'd only send him a check for five hundred dollars. Opens up a second factory in Tijuana, and now these people are wearing aprons, and they've got like electrostatic discharge things, and they've got like, you know, they've got like you know, ERP systems and e-commerce systems, and um, he's showing me the, the 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 books, and we're going to do like five million dollars in revenues that year. And we had a Tijuana drone factory. I'm like, who is this guy? What just happened here? And it turns out that he'd been this, when I think met him, he was like 19 years old in Tijuana, um, hadn't, you know, hadn't gone to college. Um, come to the, his, his, uh, his, his wife was pregnant, came to the United States to have the baby. And um, three years later, he's running a, a Tijuana drone factory. We're making more drones per month than all of America's aerospace companies combined. And we still hadn't taken like a penny of financing, and I was at my day job at Wired. So I'm like, uh, okay, I think I think this is a thing. I think we have de-risked this. I think it's ready. Uh, so we went and got some venture capital. I quit my day job at Wired. It took over as CEO. Um, built uh, built another office up here in Berkeley to be the Silicon Valley outpost, and um, we ended up raising um, 125 million dollars. Uh, became the biggest drone company in America, and um, that was like three years. So we started off as a we started off as a hobby. No, so we started off as a father-child project. Then it was a hobby. Then it was a community. Then it was a little sort of DIY company run out of you know a teenager's bedroom. Then it was like a bigger company. Um, then it was and it was just making bags and parts. I mean, literally printed circuit boards and bags. And I remember like the steps. It's like you know I think we should get more pro. I think I think. We should solder the stuff for them because people suck at soldering. And it's like, you know, I think we should have instructions. I think we should put things in boxes. I think we should have labels on the boxes. Customer support, that's a thing. Um, and every time we're like, you know, it's like we took compilers out. It's like, that for, like you know, when we originally did this, you actually had to compile the code yourself. And we're like, I think we should make it so the code's like already on it. And then, you know, it's like, like, like years into it, we're thinking, Oh wait, are we supposed to be getting like FCC certification? Yeah. Okay, we should do that. How do you do that? Anyway, so we just like we, we literally learned business from scratch, um, and we went from being a big DIY company to and then we started making drones and we made lots of drones and then we made so many drones we couldn't make them in Mexico anymore. We had to move them to China. Then we didn't make the drones anymore. Our partners made the drones, and then and then we made like a hundred thousand of those. And then it turns out that even though we were making them in China, the Chinese were making them even cheaper. So we decided we couldn't make drones at all, couldn't make hardware at all. You know, never fight a ground war in Asia, as they say. And um, we're like, oh, okay. So that, that was quick. We basically went from military industrial complex to the shelves of Walmart in about four years. Nothing's ever happened before. And the stuff on the shelves of Walmart is like better than the military one. And the reason it's more sophisticated, the reason the toys are more sophisticated than the military drones is because the users are less sophisticated. And they just want to push a button and have magic happen. 
the military is wanting to train pilots to you know learn how to do things right, but consumers just push a button magic. So um, so eventually we just basically we, we, we gave away all our technology because not all of it, but we gave away the software as open source. So we basically enabled our competitors. So we sowed the seeds of our own hardware destruction. And so three years later, everyone's like, thank you very much. We'll take your technology. We'll make them faster, cheaper, better than you. And we're like out of the hardware business. Well, first of all, you know, when you're actually in Shenzhen and you're Chinese, you're just, you're, your supply chain's better, you're, you're faster, you're just, et cetera. So we were operating via contract manufacturers and through middlemen, et cetera. Um, and, and secondly, they were willing to live on 2% margins. Mm-hmm. And we're a venture-backed company, and we're supposed to be living on 20% margins. And we just, Silicon Valley companies cannot live on Shenzhen economics. So we, we went from DIY to consumer, DIY parts to consumer drones, to now enterprise software. So now we do the software and the data around the drones. And so we basically closed the loop. So we started with like, you can build your own drone. And it's like, you don't have to build your own drone, here's a drone. And I was like, here's what you can do with the drone. And now we don't. We assume the drone exists and all we care about is the, the data that the drone collects and what you do with it. So today our, our, our customers are, um, our, our big ones are, um, we're partnering with Autodesk. And so Autodesk is, um, uh, is, is the, their big customers are like construction companies and architecture, there's like AutoCAD, et cetera. And construction is a perfect example of an unclosed loop. So you have, you, st- you design buildings on a screen, and then the moment you dig your first spade of dirt, they're analog, not digital. You've lost the ability to manage them. And, and so they become open loop systems, and if you've ever built a house, you know that cost overruns and mistakes and you know punch lists and all this kind of, kind of stuff chew up, like your, your cost basically balloons, 2x. You'd be lucky if it's 2x. And that's all because you can't measure it while it's happening, or if you can measure it, it's too late. Um, so what they want to do is they want to basically re-digitize the physical world. By the way, construction is arguably the biggest industry in the world. Um, industrial, you know, offices and homes and roads and all this kind of stuff. Um, but if you could measure it while it's happening, you could manage it much better. You know, spot the mistakes, know what's happening where. Um, you know you'd have this chain, you know, you know who did what. Look at deltas and deviations. So this is called, um, in the Autodesk parlance, this is called reality capture. They want to capture reality so they can manage it with the same tools that were used to create design reality. So they have all the fantastic tools for the analysis, but what they're missing is the capture part. So we capture reality so that they can analyze it. Things fall apart unless you hold, unless you keep them tightly. If you don't measure stuff, it, 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 it entropically falls apart. And, and construction will entropically turn into 2x cost overruns unless you measure it. That is a, um, those were all made last year. We don't make them anymore. We got, we, we got enough of them that we can t- continue to use them. But it's kind of a solved problem. This is, a, um, this is a really big deal. Um, so this is a lump black plastic. It's, I mean, it's probably the most advanced consumer device ever made aside from a car. But basically, think of it as a lump of black plastic. Mm-hmm. And it was made probably around December of last year. Mm-hmm. Now, if you buy, a, if you buy like a, a device, a car, a refrigerator, whatever, and you know, every you buy it, you take it home from the store, and every day it gets worse, right? Mm-hmm. Cars lose value when you drive them off the lot. Um, except for except for this lump of black plastic. Mm-hmm. Now this lump of black plastic plastic gets better. Mm-hmm. Why does this lump of black plastic plastic get better? It's because it, it updates. This, the apps get better, the operating system gets better, the networks get better. And what's and what's unique about this lump of black plastic is that it, it it's basically this lump of black plastic with with propellers. 
is a smartphone with propellers, and so it inherits the same characteristics of a smartphone or any other connected device, which is it gets better over time. This is a, what was the word you used, nentropic? Nentropic? Negentropic. Negentropic. So most consumer devices, so this is an entropic device, which is to say it gets worse. Every, every day it becomes more outmoded. Whereas these are negentropic devices. Because they're connected, they get better. Because the value, because the value comes from the software, not the hardware. So although this device was made in December of last year, it just got a new software update today. And it all of a sudden got new features. And it got better performance. And it's going to continue to get better and better for, for years until, some, until we reach the, the limits of its, of its hardware. So.